1: Around the world, women face barriers preventing them from rising up out of poverty, many of them legal. What we were trying to do was to declare Section 21.2 of the Matrimonial Property Act as unconstitutional. Globally, women have about three quarters of the legal rights that men have.
2: We want a better life for our families. We want a good good home. We want to send our children to better schools, but we don't have the wherewithal to do that.
1: And for women dreaming to start their own business, the cost can be high too.
2: I did not take a loan when I started newly because it's too expensive. You know, you only have commercial banks giving double-digit interest rate loans, total, you could be paying 30% a year
1: in interest. To give you an idea of how rigged this system is against women, consider this statistic. There are about 75 countries where women still do not have the same rights as men to inherit property. Why can't women gain the same footing or economic freedom as their male counterparts? And what really works for improving female financial independence? I'm Reena Nainan, and we're excited to return with season two of Hero, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from foreign policy. Throughout the season, we're going to delve into the bigger barriers blocking women financially and follow the brave people challenging their communities and countries to advance themselves and the global economy. Childcare is one of the biggest ways to support women's ability to return to work, but it's hard to do cheaply. The Sewa Union of Informal Women Workers in India has more than 2 million members, and they've provided childcare to thousands of working-class women for years. Sheila is a vegetable vendor, and before Sheila was able to send her son to a Sewa childcare center, work was
2: much harder for her. I was facing a lot of difficulties My child was annoying me all the time I could neither go out for work Nor could I do any household work But now My child is attending a childcare centre Which is beneficial to me I can go out for work He is at the centre And when he comes back at 4pm I also come back by that time I feel good about it He is smart now and studies well, and I am relaxed because they take care of my childlike family.
1: As you can hear, affordable, quality childcare really can be transformational, both for children and their mothers, who now have the time in their day to actually take on jobs or start a business. But how can we scale up organizations like SEWA that are providing the childcare infrastructure needed for many mothers to work? And how can we better support women in general? For a macro look at the issue, I'm excited to share my conversation with philanthropist and advocate Melinda French Gates. Melinda is a co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which supports this podcast. We're also joined by renowned economist Esther Duflo. She won the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences in 2019 for her experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. So I actually have a confession. I I'm watching the clock. I've got 55 minutes before the kids come in through the door. I have nothing in the fridge. And I'm thinking of all the things that moms and women do every day in addition to their work. You look at the statistics, it's pretty startling. Access to childcare for women who don't have it. It could be a $3 trillion difference, an increase in global GDP, if we did something about it. Melinda, I know you've traveled all over the world, visiting people from all walks of life. What do you think is the biggest barrier for women right now?
3: I think this unpaid work that women do every single day, whether it's cooking meals or whether it's childcare or whether it's elder care, and women are telling us all over the world, look, I want to go back to work, but I don't have high quality childcare for my child. And in fact, there was a survey just done in South Africa and Kenya and Nigeria, and the top. Three things that women say they need right now to get back to work or just restart their job, it's child care. So this is a serious issue and one that if we invest in, we could really change things for women.
1: Mm. And Esther, I'm very well aware, you know, I'm in a position where I can pay for child care. I have that option most of the women across the world do not have that option. You co-founded the Abdul Latif Jamel Poverty Action Lab. And in 2019, you were jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Science for what was described as an experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. What did the data show you? What really works in reducing poverty?
2: Well, reducing poverty is a big undertaking, so the first thing that works in reducing poverty is to break down the problem in a myriad of smaller, easier to manage and to grapple with problems. There was a series, for example, of experiments comparing in very poor countries, extremely poor countries, comparing cash transfer and food transfer, impact on nutrition. This is a series of work that was done by the CGIR, the Agricultural Research Institute, Is that across all of these countries giving money has the same effect as giving food but giving money is much cheaper because delivering food is terribly complicated during the covid pandemic several countries very quickly get transfers into the hands of their people another one is togo in togo they managed in a matter of three to four weeks to convince their phone operators to go onto one platform for transferring money to the poor. And therefore, what they could do, literally six weeks into the pandemic, is that whenever they needed to do a lockdown, they could immediately get money into the hands, into the cell phone, literally, of people and support them during the pandemic. And you look at the
1: statistics, implementing cash transfer programs that target women as part of COVID-19 relief could lift 100 million women out of poverty. That's according to the Eurasia Group. Melinda, what about the pushback that this concept of you give a woman a fish, she eats for a day, you teach her how to fish, she eats for a lifetime. Why are cash transfers different?
3: Well, cash transfers, when done well, just as Esther said, like as Togo is done, when they're targeted in the hands of women Women know what they need for their family, what type of food, what type of job they could create. They are very entrepreneurial. And so what we know is these cash transfer payments in women's hands actually lead to empowerment. So what does empowerment look like? It feels like an amorphous term, but when you go out and talk to these women all over the world, they will tell you. They say, if it's in India, my mother-in-law sees me differently when I have cash. My son sees me differently when I have a little bit of cash and I've created a business and then eventually I can buy him a bike. My husband sees me differently when I have cash. So what we know is that little bit of cash can start a woman on a
2: path. So if I can build up on that, there was a very interesting experiment in India, in Madhya Pradesh, where they really managed to get, there is a workfare program there, and the women and men work for it, but the money was kind of pulled together into a joint account and a group of researchers they managed to really separate them, make sure that the money gets separately awarded to the woman or to the men so the money that was on to the woman went into the women bank's account in a way that was very well identified and linked again to their cell phone and what they found which was really interesting is that one of the main outcomes of this extra empowerment is women were actually seeking out other work because one of the things that women want to do is to work. India is one of the country in the world with the lowest labor force participation of women, lower even than Saudi Arabia, both due to the burden they have at home and due to social norms, to be honest. So when women get this extra cash on hand, what did they use the power that it brought with the mother-in-law, with the husband, etc., to get more work?
1: You're listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women,
0: Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production by Foreign Policy. I'm Reena Nainan. I'm talking today with Melinda French Gates and economist Esther Duflo. In this next part of our conversation, they share more ways how we can all support women better and they also get a bit personal. Melinda, what do you feel really works when it comes to getting female entrepreneurs in developing countries up and running and just a foothold on the ladder? Well, just as Esther has said
3: is you you do, you have to look at the micro before you can get to the macro. You have to at the micro setting get into what are the social norms that are there and how might you change them. Quite often if you have a self-help group, a group of women banded together, they support one another. If you can bring men into those conversations, I've seen amazing work done where men become part of the conversation and then it opens their eyes and they say, wait a minute, we can help solve this. There's no reason a woman can't go to the clinic earlier in the day. We can help transport them. We can help with the water. So it's when men and women sit down collectively and start to realize and bring out on the table, what are we doing? What do we believe? Oh, let's commit to changing that. And it's why i become so passionate about making sure that we both talk about women's stories and where we really are in the world We have to bring men into this conversation. They're the only ones that are going to help us change this, right? So we've got to work on both the micro and the macro and realize there are barriers that hold women back. And yet when we do things, we empower them with loans. We empower them with knowledge. We pull men into the conversation to support them. We can actually change societies and change the world.
1: Esther, I want to ask you as well, you know, in this moment, um, Linda was talking sort of about post-COVID, where we are, how we move forward from where we're at right now. You know, data is really your weapon in explaining what works in addressing poverty. And at least right now, we know inflation's on the rise. We know that inflation greatly affects the poor. What do you feel is needed right now in this moment that could make a difference?
2: I, I think things are the situation is very different in richer countries than in poorer countries. Uh, rich countries during the pandemic spent about... 22 to 23% of their GDP in fiscal stimulus measures and have successfully, uh, largely, uh, protected their population, poorest in their population against the worst of the COVID crisis from an economic point of view. Of course, not from a health point of view. And sure, there is inflation, but there is also a lot of job around and people are making money and people don't like inflation. But at the end of the day now, the economic outlook in the US is, is very good. Uh, And similarly in Europe, actually. So in the poor countries, the story is a bit different or radically different. When the rich countries spend 23% of their GDP on fiscal stimulus measure, a middle income country spent 6%, the poorest countries spent 2% of a much smaller GDP which means basically that, you know, with the, despite the example we gave for, from Togo, which after having developed this wonderful system, couldn't find any money to fund it, basically what happened is that they weren't able to protect their population or their economy or their entire systems from the COVID-19 crisis. So what do we need to do now? Like we need to go back to, we need to rebuild. And we can, we haven't done it once. We It's going to take, it's not gonna be, instant, it's going to take a lot of ingenuity, a lot of effort, a lot of money, hopefully some amount of solidarity from the Western world.
1: Melinda, a few months ago, you told me that one of the last places you visited right before this pandemic was South Africa, just incredibly devastated by the situation with COVID. What's your biggest worry for countries around the world as women are trying to get a foothold and deal with the issues that they deal with at home, but also generate an income, and what gives you the most hope?
3: I think what concerns me the most is exactly what Esther's talking about. It's what we call the economic scarring that happens in countries. And just as she said, the high-income countries were able to invest and put more into their social safety nets to hopefully get people back on their feet much more quickly. You know. We should have learned a lesson after Ebola in 2014 where it affected basically four West countries in West Africa. What we saw after that, what went through those countries is men's jobs came back, but many of the women's jobs never came back. And that is devastating for those families and for those economies writ large. So what can we do? Exactly what Esther said, we have got, the Western countries have got to come together and use all their tools and their economic toolbox to make sure that we actually put money into these countries. We are a global community. We do care about our fellow human beings and we have global trade now. And so if we wanna get a full and total
1: economic recovery around the world, we need to help these countries get back on their feet. Both of you women have spent so much of your careers trying to uplift women who don't have much. I want to start with you, Melinda. Why is it that you're so passionate and you spend so much time focused in parts of the world where others wouldn't even travel?
3: Well, first of all, I'm incredibly lucky that I can even travel, right? That I could even have childcare at the time for my kids when I would go to places in Africa. But I think It's the connection. I have just met so many incredible people in country after country, in Africa, in various places in Africa or in Bangladesh or in India. And when you sit down and talk to men and women and talk to them about their hopes and their dreams, so often they're exactly the same hopes and dreams we have here in the United States or in the UK or in France, which is we want our children to be able to reach their full potential. And when you're in a position as fortunate as I'm in that I never expected to be in in life, you say, wow, if I could do a little something to contribute to that, that's what I want to do. And it it certainly gives my life meaning. And those deep connections I've been able to make with people, they've changed my life probably even more than I will change theirs.
2: I think it really starts with what Melinda said, which is, what if I had been born in, a, in other circumstances? So when I was a child, my mother was traveling. She, she's a doctor, she's a pediatrician. She was involved in an NGO of doctors uh, helping children victims of war. So she was going places for some weeks that the tyrant would come back and, and tell us, this is what you're doing for the world. You are allowing me to go. And then would discuss these things with us. And from that age, I kept thinking, I could have been born any of these kids, I could have been the little girl who is walking two kilometers to get water. And then from that time, around eight or nine, I've been thinking, what do I do to justify the incredible luck that I have to be born in an upper middle-class family in France instead of a poor family in Congo? I I haven't done anything to deserve that, and yet that happened. So I better do something to deserve it now. So it's kind of, I was always looking for what it was gonna be. Well, I love intrepid women who take their flashlights and shine it in places others won't go.
1: So I wanna thank you guys so much for this conversation and, and for opening up our new season of the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women.
3: Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this, Rina.
1: Many thanks to Melinda French-Gates and Esther Duflo, Melinda French Gates is the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She's also the founder of Pivotal Ventures and author of The Moment of Lift, which is all about her work on gender equality. Esther Duflo is an MIT professor, Nobel Prize winning economist, and author of Good Economics for Hard Times and Poor Economics, A Radical Rethinking of the Way to Fight Global Poverty. The phrase, global community, the recognition of how interconnected we all are today through social media and video conferencing, the lightning speed in which information can be shared and transactions can be made. That's a global side of it, but the community aspect of it is just as important. For so long, things that happened in other parts of the world were out of sight and out of mind. It was something happening to other people. In modern times, we don't have that luxury anymore. And while that may feel like a burden for some, it can also be an opportunity. As we continue with this series, we hope to inform and inspire you to find a place where you can also make a difference, to take action or to speak up to leaders and decision-makers. Because as we mentioned, identifying injustice is only the first step. The next is pushing for change. Next week, we'll have the story of a courageous South African woman who took on the entire judicial system of her country. And while all her worldly possessions and even her safety were at stake. Agnes, what were you scared of the most in this process? My life. My life. Your life? Yes. Why?
3: When somebody doesn't like you anymore and when somebody has got some influences from outside who don't know what he, he, he might think, he might think this is the best way to, to end the courts. I'm sure he was tired himself of going to the courts. There, there was going to be one way of
1: ending it. But I wasn't going to get out of my house. They discriminated between African married couples and all other races in South Africa. More on Agnes's fight for justice next week. And that does it for today's show, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of foreign policy and made possible through the funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Brina Nynan. Laura Rossbrough Tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Megan Cattell, Anisa Pazeshki, Simone Perez, and Dan Efron. Special thanks this week to all the people who helped make our conversation with Melinda French-Gates and Esther Duflo possible. That includes Amy Jarrett, Laura Dickinson, Bo Youngmeyer, Sam Veach, Lynn Thompson, Heather McCurdy, Rim Jim Day, and thank you to Ketki Gujar and Miraben Chatterjee, who connected us to Sheila from SEVA. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back next week.